1: After two back-to-back supercharged hurricane seasons, 2022 is again expected to be above average. When tropical systems are spinning far out in the ocean and away from land, meteorologists compare satellite imagery of the current storm to past storms to estimate its intensity. It's a technique that dates back to the 1970s called the Dvorak technique and is still used today. Satellite meteorologist Derek Herndon joins Weather Geeks today to share how the Dvorak technique has been upgraded. Derek, thank you for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast.
0: Thanks, Marshall. Thank you for having me. Well, before we start
1: geeking out on satellite meteorology, which I'm a satellite guy as well, I, as I said before we started the podcast, I teach the satellite meteorology class at the University of Georgia, uh, and, and uh, before that, I spent some time at NASA. So this is really in high geekdom territory for me, this topic <laughs> today. Um, but before we go there, I've got to ask you the question that I get to ask every guest. How'd you become a weather geek?
0: So my weather geek goes back uh, pr- pretty far back. As some of your other speakers have mentioned, they they were you know influenced at a very young age. And that's that's the case with me as well. Um, I was fishing with my grandfather and my father in the Florida Keys. Uh, we were uh, off one of the Keys off of Marathon. And while we were out there a couple miles offshore, a water spout um, came down from the clouds. Uh, I was seven years old. So I was out there seven years old very dark black sky and this this snaking cloud comes down and touches down the water just a few miles from us and and i was kind of terrified but my grandfather was like no that's just a water spout you know it's not going to hit us and so we sat there and we watched that for a few minutes and that 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 moment really really stuck with me and um from that point on i just started looking at the clouds in more detail and uh, you know growing up in south florida of course we have thunderstorms every day so there's so much interesting weather I would say that we had tropical cyclones, but growing up in the seventies in South Florida, we had that drought period. <laughs> so really we did not have a lot of tropical cyclones. Um, but, uh, but then I moved to Oregon and while I was in Oregon, I got to see like a, a, a completely different kind of weather. And that just even intrigued me more like the variety of it, right? You know, the snow and the wind storms and all of that. And, uh, and so my, my father very much encouraged all of this, of course, and he bought me my first weather kit and I installed it uh, outside of our um, apartment. I started taking observations every single day. I was posting forecasts on the refrigerator, you know, and I just became really, really obsessed with it. It was, that was probably when I was about 11. And at that point I was like, I'm going to be a meteorologist. That's all I ever really had wanted to be. You mentioned Oregon. Were they
1: talking about atmospheric rivers at that time? I know we have known about them for a few decades now, but uh, in recent years, they've really become quite known in the public lexicon, but not,
0: not so much then when you were there, I bet. No, no. I I never heard that term. Um, And we didn't talk about El Nino either. (laughs) So, you know, that really um, became more prominent, I think, in the 80s and and its impact on the West Coast, you know, rainfall patterns there. So but I did get to experience a number of, you know, very heavy rainfall, flooding events. And and of course, some of those big windstorms with those really powerful extratropical cyclones coming ashore. So, you know, I got to see plenty of very interesting weather while I was there as well. And then then I moved back to Florida and that's when I got to actually see some hurricanes (laughs) in the Tampa area.
1: Well, I should give you a little bit of Derek's background. He has a bachelor's degree in meteorology from my alma mater, Florida State University, and before that, as a, 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 I mean, after that, I should say, a veteran Navy forecaster. He's he's currently a hurricane researcher at the University of Wisconsin Madison in their Cooperative Institute for Meteorological Satellite Studies, one of the premier uh, institutions within our field on satellite meteorology. So, uh, again, here at WeatherGeeks, we try to go right to the top sources, and so. Uh, really honored to have Derek here. Let's start off with some basic geek out here, as weather geeks. Uh, tell everyone what the Dvorak scale is, how it works, and why we need it.
0: So the Dvorak scale is a, is a scale. Um, uh, we, we rate these numbers and basically can distill this information from the satellite imagery down to is like a single number. That goes from about one to, one to eight. So one being the weakest and eight being the strongest, you could get up to a nine. It's really, really hard to get to the top of, of that value. But typically you'll see values peak out around the 8.0. So the scale, the numbers are re- related to the maximum sustained winds of the tropical cyclone. So uh, Dvorak, um, you know, back in the, in the early 70s, um, especially around the time, around 73, 74 or so, he he figured out that he could look at these satellite images and um you know, that he could look at these patterns and how much curvature was occurring in the cloud structures and how cold the cloud tops were and how organized these patterns were. And he was able to relate that to the storm intensity. Previous work had tried to do this uh, and no one really has had succeeded at being able to successfully relate, you know, the features, but he just had a real keen sense um, for these patterns. Um, And and, uh, so he set about to try and match up these patterns uh, to these numbers and uh, and then he he developed a scale uh, and a kind of a flow chart that a forecaster could go through and pick different types of patterns and then from those patterns, you could apply that number that goes from one to eight. Now there are some you know idiosyncrasies there where there are some rules that you, you know you can't pick a certain number if a certain amount of time is passed like twenty four hours, but it's it's actually something that anybody anybody here could look at this chart and probably figure out. Now, to get really good at it takes <laughs> actually takes a number of years. And um, so he developed that technique initially with visible satellite imagery, and then he uh, modified it to use infrared satellite imagery. So that infrared satellite imagery gives us the, t- the cloud top temperatures, and he was able to relate the uh, col- how cold the cloud top temperatures were to the intensity and also the temperature of the eye. So it's a technique that kind of evolved in the 70s and then into the early 80s, um, becoming a little bit more... Uh, easier to use and also using this multispectral imagery. So using the visible imagery and the infrared satellite imagery. And uh, the, you know, the scale goes from a, a tropical depression of about 25 knots all the way up to a category five, you know, hurricane of 170 knots.
1: And again, you know, those of us in the field are very familiar with this. And, you know, we know that when these storms get closer to land, we we can get radar fixes on them and we have, you know, aircraft flying in and giving us information on pressure and wind and so forth. Uh, this scale, as you noted, is really useful uh, when these storms are, you know, out, out perhaps out of reach of radar or aircraft, but can give us some sense of the organization of these tropical systems. But how good is it? I mean, do you have any information? <laughs> on how, I mean, I mean, how, how do
0: you assess how good it is? So the way they first assessed it was was with aircraft data. Um, the air, you know initially when the, we were first getting our first satellite images in the 60s and early 70s, it was just used to to tell the aircraft where to go. <laughs> just there's a there's a glob of thunderstorms out there. It looks pretty organized. Fly out there and check it out. And they would fly out and they would gather gather the pressure and wind data. So as the Dvorak technique kind of developed, they were able to start to validate this data. And and actually the training of the data occurred mostly with Western Pacific aircraft data. So it started actually in the Western Pacific because there was a lot of aircraft reconnaissance. Of course, everything the military does is impacted by the weather. So the military and especially the Navy was very interested in understanding these these tropical cyclones, so they flew a lot of missions into these systems, and so we had a lot of ground truth, you know, actual truth of what the surface pressure was in these storms, and so they were able to relate that to the intensity. So those early those early techniques and that early validation showed that this was a skillful technique, and to its credit, I mean, at this point in time, we're basically using the technique more or less unmodified from the you know the early eighties. And so a number of people have done studies to verify, you know, is this really holding up and, and like 90% of the intensity estimates fall within about 20 knots of the true intensity. So it's really actually very skillful. You're not, you're not often going to be off by say a full category, you know, Sapper Simpson category, you're going to usually be pretty close to the true intensity. So it does work very, very well.
1: It does. And and obviously, so one thing that you mentioned satellite, I mean, satellite perspective gives you a very different perspective than, say, an in-situ or radar perspective. Satellites are multispectral. And what I mean by that is they're using different parts of the electromagnetic spectrum from the visible to the infrared sometimes even microwave. Um, This technique leverages both the visible and infrared. Am, Am I correct in that?
0: That's correct. Um, but I will say most people use the infrared. There's a little bit more objective information in the infrared, especially when you have an eye that emerges in the in the hurricane. because once an eye emerges, then you can actually compare the temperature inside the eye, which is warm, to the ring of thunderstorms outside the eye, which is cold. And there's a very, very strong relationship between that temperature differential. Um, and that's really when the Dvorak technique is, is the most objective. Now, finding the center of the tropical cyclone sometimes is, is challenging in the infrared if um, the center is uh, you know hidden beneath the cloud. So sometimes visible imagery is used to locate the center. And I should note that, that that is the first part of the technique. The very first step in this technique is you have to know where the center is, because the position of the center of the, the tropical cyclone relative to these, these thunderstorm features is the critical part of the Dvorak technique. And if you don't get that right, you're gonna gonna get the wrong answer. So visible imagery often is used to help locate the center. There is a Dvorak technique for the visible um, and some people do use it sometimes when maybe the infrared is a little more ambiguous. Um, But for the most part, people use the infrared version of it. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news.
1: And we're back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, and I'm speaking with Derek Herndon about the Dvorak technique. And before we move forward, I want to just give a shout out to my Florida State peer and classmate, Jack Bevin at the National Hurricane Center. Derek and I both know him well, and Derek tells me he's probably one of the top experts there at the National Hurricanes that are on this technique that we're discussing. And speaking of this technique, I know you've been tweaking it over the last 20 years or so. We actually had the launch of the GOES new GOES series, starting with the GOES R, and I believe we just recently launched a couple of others recently, or at least one more after that. Um, what what are these tweaks gaining us, or and is the new satellite capabilities being launched helping in any way?
0: Yes, yeah, so absolutely. So so uh, the GOES sixteen, GOES seventeen, and GOES eighteen. Now um, satellites have higher resolution um, in the channels that we look at, both the visible and the infrared. And that's very critical because uh, as we've discussed, the when we measure the eye temperature, um, that's very important uh, part of this technique when there is an eye that's visible. And we're able to resolve those temperatures better with this higher resolution imagery. Uh, in the past, if we had a hurricane that was far out in the Atlantic, it might fall near the edge of the, of the satellite uh, view. And that really extreme scan angle sometimes would produce an eye temperature that was too cold. So having this higher resolution is going to help us resolve those eye temperatures a lot better and also resolve the, the temperature structures around the eye and the, and, the, and the convection. Also, having the more frequent updates, of course, will help. And, and we can, you can do a Dvorak estimate for every satellite image that you have available. Um, the official Dvorak uh, people who do these routinely do them every six hours. Now, I mentioned we have an automated technique um, that does this. It could do it also with every image. We can do it every 30 minutes or, or every hour um, called the uh, advanced TIRAC technique that has evolved over the years, and uh, that that technique also will benefit from this higher resolution image. Um, we talked a little bit about this multispectral idea of you know visible and infrared imagery, and you mentioned the microwave too. And so I guess I'll, what I want to do too is also mention we also have a lot of new microwave uh, satellites that can measure in the microwave spectrum. And as we talked about this, this the location of the storm center is very critical for this. And Sometimes the visible image and the infrared image are very difficult to determine the center. And a lot of times we can use that microwave image to see where the center is because the microwave is transparent to the clouds and the precipitation. And we can actually sometimes see eye features in the microwave that are hidden uh, from the geostationary imagery. So that's very helpful at times.
1: Indeed. In fact, um, um, when I was at NASA, I worked on the TRIM and the GPM missions, which carried microwave sensors. And you know, and there are others as well, and oftentimes they can give you a radar-like view of the eyewall eye system. Uh, they're really helpful with things like uh, concentric eyewalls, eyewall replacement cycles, and so forth uh, that we may not be able to get from land-based radar. Uh, I understand that, you know, as in all parts of meteorology these days, that artificial intelligence uh, is becoming increasingly a part of our toolkit. Is AI at all utilized in your intensity estimates or Dvorak technique uh, modifications going forward?
0: It absolutely is. And and we just recently had a paper um, on this um, using AI to uh, apply this to the ADT data. So the the advanced Dvorak technique does basically kind of what the Dvorak does. In fact, when it was initially developed in the late 1990s, it very much mimicked the Dvorak um, pattern recognition. Um, One of the challenges with that, however, is, is, again, this whole idea of locating the center. A lot of times uh, you would have to physically, you know, change the center and the the data to get the right answer. So having microwave available and having these deep learning techniques to locate the center is very critical. Um, We probably have about maxed out our ability to use the geostationary and these more traditional algorithms. Uh, uh, You know, the the Dvorak probably isn't going to change a whole lot going forward at this point. Um, The advanced Dvorak technique, these objective algorithms, and even some of the other algorithms that use the microwave uh, sounder data from the temperature data and and some of the microwave imager data, we probably have about maxed out our abilities to extract um, skillful intensity information with those. But the deep learning techniques are starting to provide us with some additional tool sets now to kind of move beyond that a little bit. So one, one thing that we did was um, Tim Olander, who uh, works on the advanced direct technique, uh, decided, well, what if we just take the output from that, that technique, that ADT, and it produces a history file of all these parameters of, of um, you know the cloud top temperature, the eye temperature, uh, distance to center, and and a number of different parameters. And what if we just pass that through a deep learning uh, model and see if we can improve the scale? And so they did that and we uh, were able to actually improve The uh, upon the ADT with that, so we have this AI version of the Dvorak technique now, and other folks are working on this as well. There are a number of people who are are working on deep learning approaches to uh, estimate the intensity from geostationary imagery. We also have a team at uh, Sims uh, that's also working on a deep learning technique uh, to use the microwave imagery, and so we have multiple ways to get the intensity now. And. And I should mention, you know, we've talked about this idea that these storms are out at sea and sometimes we don't have aircraft. Well, 80% of the tropical cyclones on the planet have to be analyzed using satellite imagery. We only have a very small portion of those storms in the the Atlantic where we can actually fly aircraft in. Now, that's critical because we need that aircraft data to to validate those techniques and to use for training for the techniques. Um, But we do have a number of techniques now. And we have the Dvorak, subdirective Dvorak. We have an advanced Dvorak that's objective. We have an AI version we have um, microwave sounder techniques. We also have microwave um, imager techniques. You mentioned trim as one, so AMSR, amsr 2 um, SSMIS example, for example. And now what we can do is, what we found is much like in the model world, whereas you have multiple models um, and you do an ensemble of those models, a lot of times you get better skill. We can do the same thing with these techniques. We can combine the best attributes of all of these techniques into a single method um, a, a type of consensus. And in many cases, that consensus tends to be better than the individual met- methods themselves. So again, just kind of looking at this multispectral space and applying all these different satellite imagery, uh, uh, both in a conventional sense and also in these new deep learning models. And I should also mention that we have CubeSats now that we've launched. Uh, and those CubeSats are going to be critical, I think, going forward because the CubeSats uh, will provide us with different channels to look at and also higher temporal frequencies. So polar orbiting satellite only goes over a storm twice a day, but if you launch a bunch of little, these small CubeSats, you could get you know um, uh, 12 visits per day and you get a lot more temporal fidelity and, and, and be able to observe the changes in the intensity, which is very important because um, you know, the Dvorak and all these other techniques provide a current intensity, they can also give us a sense of the trend. So if you know what this this storm was 12 hours ago, and you know what it is now, you have a very simple forecast. You can just simply extrapolate that out into the future and get a sense as to how the storm is changing intensity. So the the ability to observe the intensity changes, and most critically, these rapid intensity changes, especially if the storm is approaching the coast, um, to observe these rapid intensity changes is very key. And so again, leveraging basically all the tools that we have available to us now, you know, scatterometers, synthetic aperture radar, you know, uh, passive microwave sounders, passive microwave imagers, and all the geostationary imagery, kind of putting it all together. Um, And that's exactly what the Hurricane Center does. When they get all this information coming in, they kind of condense it down um, using the best attributes, uh, what they know, what the biases are to produce that, that intensity for the storm. Uh, And everything that you just said is why it makes teaching satellite meteorology quite
1: challenging, because there are always new systems and updates. Exactly. Uh, In fact, (laughs) I am going to have to update some of my Dvorak technique section this fall to account for some of what you just mentioned. I'm I'm certainly familiar with some of the advances and so forth. but. I always like to make sure our students are getting the most up-to-date information. And so I actually may be reaching out to you for some, some pointers on where I can find out more information on some of the sort of newer techniques that you just mentioned, the AI-based and microwave-based techniques as well. Uh, you, I believe you answered this question. Uh, I wanted to know if the Doric technique is used in other basins by other meteorological agencies.
0: It is, and it, it, it it's also the primary method by which um, these tropical cyclone warning agencies produce intensity estimates. So um, the Japanese Meteorological Agency has their version of the Dvorak technique. A lot of times in the, these ocean basins, there'll be very small changes that, that are needed. Um, for, an exa- for example, in the Western Pacific, the cloud top temperatures tend to be a bit colder because the tropopause is higher. Uh, so some modifications need to be made for that. Storms out there also tend to be a bit, little bit larger. And, and something we haven't really talked about is... You can use the Dvorak technique to get the maximum sustained winds. In many ways, it actually is more accurate at getting the pressure, um, but then you have to convert that pressure to a wind so that we have these pressure wind relationships that can be different in the different ocean basins. But, um, uh, La Reunion uses it. The Bureau of Meteorology, uh, uses it. They have quite a few um, people there that are also very good experts been doing this for a very long time. Um, so all the warning agencies around the world do use the Dvorak technique. Um, again, because really satellite imagery is the only way that they can get the intensity of, of a tropical cyclone unless it you know makes landfall over an island or they get a rare ship observation. So yes, that, absolutely, all the other agencies use this.
1: VR training platforms, like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International, are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients.
0: As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop.
1: Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Speck Shepherd. don't even know my own name from the University of Georgia. And I'm speaking with Derek Herndon uh, from SIMS. You know, one of the things as we go into the 2022 hurricane season, and I've been kind of, and others have as well, we've been really talking about how the flooding and rainfall threat in tropical cyclones is often underplayed or undervalued by the public and so forth. I think the wind information is, and wind imagery is what in many people's mind resonates with a hurricane or a tropical system. Uh, The largest percentage of deaths is related to water, whether it's flooding uh, inundation or or inland freshwater flooding. Uh, Can the advanced uh, Dvorak technique give us any information about rainfall potential in cyclones?
0: Yeah, it's a great, that's a great question. And it's something that, you know, we, you know, as communicators, we're always trying to hammer home to people is that, you know, we do tend to focus on the maximum sustained winds, but really that is that is not what actually kills the most people. It's actually water. It used to be storm surge, uh, now it's really rainfall. Uh unfortunately, there is not a good correlation between storm intensity and rainfall. And we can see that in a couple of really good examples. Um You know, uh, we've had tropical storms that have made landfall that have produced, you know, deadly flooding, flooding, you know, 20, 40 plus inches of rainfall. And um, we've had category four or five hurricanes that, you know, that are fairly small and compact moving fairly quickly that have produced minimal rainfall and even minimal surge. Um, Hurricane Charlie would be a good example of that making uh, landfall in southwest Florida. So we' still really are trying to develop additional tools um, for measuring rainfall. and and some of the best tools we have really are, are just understanding that that rainfall is highly correlated with storm motion. So the slower a storm moves, uh, the more rainfall it will produce. Now, how that relates to the VorAC technique, we, we you know we can determine storm motion from the Dorac technique because it does allow you to determine the position and the track and how how fast or how slow the storm is moving. Um, It doesn't really tell you a lot about storm size, which can also impact the rainfall. Um, And it doesn't really tell you about um, uh, necessarily about how much rainfall will occur, except that you can correlate very, very cold cloud top temperatures that the Dvorak technique will give you to maybe excessive rainfall. Um, But for that, for rainfall problem, we really need other tools. So again, the microwave data can help because we can see through the clouds and actually see the rainfall in the tropical cyclone to determine how much is actually falling Um, And then we can extrapolate that forward um, for landfall and match that up to storm motion to determine kind of rainfall rates. Um, But really, this is definitely a problem that we continue to work on. You know, as we saw just last year, again, you know, in in terms of communication, we have uh, Ida, you know, which produced, you know, tremendous rainfall well away from the landfall. Um, you know, so at that point, once the storm is over land, we don't, the Dvorak technique no longer can be used. So then in that case, we definitely need other tools. And, you know, typically we'll be using radar in that that case, or maybe some other microwave data, but radar would definitely be our biggest tool for the rainfall problem.
1: Shifting gears a bit, I know you're involved in some volunteer efforts like All Hands and Hearts. Tell us a little bit about that. Also, Shelter from the Storm, which helps with dogs and cats. Uh, so I'm wondering <laughs> if your research in hurricanes uh, inspired these, or you, you just have a good heart in general, or perhaps a little of both.
0: Um, so it definitely was inspired a little bit by the disaster issue. You know, I, I, I study these these horrible, deadly storms, and um, a lot of times when you're watching a storm make landfall, you just you just feel powerless. You just, there's just nothing you can do. You've done, you've done everything you can do. You've, you've provided all the information, you know, and, and now you're just hoping that the public will, will listen to the warnings and, and follow the advice of the local officials. But a lot of times, you know, you're watching this, this disaster unfold and there's just not much you can do, but after the fact, there are things you can do, you know, you can go in and, um, and volunteer and help clean up. So, um, all hands on hearts does that. Uh, they they go in after the storm, and uh, a lot of times it's flooding. So in this case, um, um, Hurricane Harvey, you know, with the tremendous flooding in Texas, you end up with a lot of damaged drywall, and these a lot of these people they they don't have the means really to to repair all that themselves, and they may not even have the financial means. So so having these teams go in after the fact and assist these families and and rebuilding their homes, I think is something that that's very very critical and. And uh, and it just gives you a sense that you you know, you're actually doing something Um, shelter from the storm. I'm I'm a dog owner. I love dogs. (laughs) We have three dogs. Uh, And uh, so again, that's just a thing where, you know, we like to go to the shelter and uh, and take care of the pets there, take them for walks, you know, take up, take care of their shelters. Um, I'm a very hands-on person. So I do some of the maintenance work there, uh, help cleaning up the kennels and help doing things like taking down tree limbs that have come down, things like that. So, you know, both, both both me and my wife, Nicole, and she works at the United Way, so that tells you a little bit about her heart as well. Um, we, we just love working as a team on, on you know, helping people in ways that, that kind of fit for us and uh, work with our skill sets.
1: Is there anywhere that people listening can find out more about your work in general and websites or social media, SIMS, uh, you personally, uh, give, give us some of the places people can find out more about this work, Dvorak technique or SIMS or you.
0: Sure. So, so our, our website has been up since the 1990s. We we're, we're pretty proud of that. Um, you know, we were one of the early websites that were providing tropical cyclone information and, and we're still going strong. We're adding new stuff all the time. In fact, um So if you go to our our website at the uh, Sims Tropical Cyclone page, very easy to find. Just type in Google Sims Tropical Cyclones and you will almost certainly get the first hit on that page. Um, That will provide you a ton of information on all the different algorithms that we use. Uh, We have uh, explanations for many of these. So, so, you know, a a novice reader could read through this and get get a sense as to what we're trying to accomplish there and of course a lot of our new stuff is highlighted there. Um my uh you can contact me through that page. There's a link there but you can also find me on Twitter at dherndin2. Uh not uh, super active on Twitter. Uh sometimes social media feels like a second job. I'm sure you probably would agree with that. <laughs> you know, just kind of keeping up with all of it. Um but oh, I yeah, do it's quite 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 a, a load. <laughs> <laughs> it is. So I, I I post things when I can, especially if I see something interesting with with um respect to a storm's intensity or how it's being handled. Uh, most recently, there was some interest about Alex obviously developing uh, in the Northwest Caribbean and the Southern Gulf, of Mexico, and uh, provided some examples on some Dvorak uh, comparisons between that storm um, and Agatha, which is very interesting. If you if you looked at Alex when it was in the Northwest Caribbean, you, you actually could have used the Dvorak technique to get a hurricane out of it, but, but you would have been very wrong. <laughs> so I talked a little bit about that. And uh, so when things like that come up, I will post them. Um, Obviously new satellite launches I'll also share and, uh, and the work that we're doing to kind of leverage that new satellite data to develop new techniques.
1: Well, this is, this was awesome. I, I know you've appeared on some of the Weather Channel on um, television platforms, but had limited time. And so I'm glad you were able to join us on Weather Geeks for a deeper dive. This has really been fascinating. This is just really what Weather Geeks is built for so that we can get these deep dives. Uh, we've got to go. But before we do, it's the time of the podcast where we like to highlight a scientist superstar, a great geologist, or a weather weenie. It's the Geek of the Week. This episode's Geek of the Week is Robert Olivares. Robert is a utility engineer in California. His most memorable weather is the 2011 California windstorm. That was when winds as strong as 140 miles per hour blasted across the area. These hurricane force winds fell thousands of trees and hundreds of power lines, leaving hundreds of thousands without power, some for up to a week. Robert's obsession with the weather has earned him the nickname Glendale Gust. Now, if you or someone you know would be a deserving candidate for our next Geek of the Week, check out our social media pages. Uh, Derek, thank you so much for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast.
0: Thank you, Marshall. I really, really appreciate it. And I I thank thank you for all that you do, (laughs) you know, and and all the efforts that, that you lead up. I appreciate that.
1: Well, thank you all again for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. It's been an amazing uh, geek out. Uh, We love what we do here. And that topic today was certainly uh, tailor-made for what we try to do here. And so I want to thank Derek Herndon for joining us. And we'll see you next time on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia.